This is 3P Theory, the podcast for AEC professionals seeking to elevate their knowledge on green building strategies and practical design collaboration for sustainable mindsets, bringing you change makers, innovators, and sustainable leaders who have positively impacted the industry. It's time to get inspired, motivated, and fired up to take action towards a greener planet. Here's your host, Mike Brown. Welcome, everyone. Um, definitely want to bring in a very special guest today. Uh, who brings an innovative approach to the environment, uh, energy, and blockchain matters for his companies, uh, investment funds, and startups. He has an extensive experience in environmental and energy matters as it represents in providing clients in blockchain, smart contracts, cryptocurrency, and cryptocurrency mining. Based in Dallas and works on a matter of clients in the Texas area as well as the greater United States and other parts of the world, he is one of the Texas's leading environmental and energy lawyers with over 30 years of experience in achieving successful outcomes for his clients. Peers, colleagues, and clients have repeatedly selected him for various honors, including D Magazine's Best Environmental Attorney in Dallas, Super Lawyers, and Best Lawyers. He represents his clients in environmental matters such as air emissions permits, wastewater, solid and hazardous waste, groundwater contamination, and restoration and reuse of contaminated properties, and he is one of the leading attorneys in the climate change and carbon trading space. Today, I'd like to welcome attorney and author of Carbon Trading in Practice, Scott Detheridge with Scott Detheridge Law. Thank you very much, Mike. Well, definitely glad to have you here today, and this is actually a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for quite some time, just because I know with changing regulations, um, whether it be on a large scale or even a local uh, level, um, you know, kind of raises some concerns and really want to be able to bring that awareness to uh, not only just community members, but also practitioners as it relates to uh, the architectural engineering and construction space specifically. Um, but before we jump into that, um, definitely want to understand how you really got into uh, environmental law specifically. I know it's a pretty unique uh, subset of the legal practice. Um, kind of want to understand that background. So when I was growing up, uh, Jacques Cousteau was my hero. And so I, I uh, originally was going to be a marine biologist. And uh, through different events in my college career, I decided to go to law school. And when you go to law school, there's, a, there's so many different ways to go in law. There's so many different disciplines. And obviously environmental made sense based on my background in ecology, aquatic ecology. And so that's really how I got into environmental law. And then as the years went by, I became more involved in um, first wind energy at the utility scale because Texas is one of the leading states. If it is the leading state in wind energy in the United States. And then over the last few years, um, also got involved and have worked on 40 or 50 uh, solar pro- utility scale solar projects, as well as working with um, clients and investment funds working on energy and energy efficiency in, in buildings at the commercial industrial scale. So um, life takes you in many different directions. You don't always predict, but uh, it's been a fun ride and uh, have had a, had a lot of fun and had a lot of great clients. And, and uh, so it's been very enjoyable. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And with this space in particular, uh, with so many changes and, and, and how rapidly it happens uh, across the various jurisdictions, um, you know, you have to be, I guess, on top of, what's happening and what's new and innovative and how that's going to impact uh, not only industries, but legislation. So um, it's, it's really uh, something that's, that I'm I'm looking to to learn more about. Um, So within that subset um, 
within the legal practice for environmental law. What makes it, I guess, as you as unique or really unique in the sense that, um, you know, there's other subsets within law um, and kind of maybe for people that are interested in pursuing, you know, uh, a practice uh, in that particular field, uh, what makes it really different and kind of what are some of the challenges? Well, first of all, it's um, it's a critical issue for everyone. It's, it's hard to talk about environmental issues without people uh, thinking it's important either because they're for it or against it. So uh, it's always on people's minds. Um, and in the course of my 30 years of practice, it's really become part of almost everything we do. Um, when you buy and sell a piece of property, there's an environmental assessment of, is there any contamination on the property? What If so, how do you deal with it? Um, now, more and more, where when people are making investments, they're thinking about climate change. Um, Goldman Sachs and Blackstone have come out with papers and policies about, you know, we want all our companies we invest in, our real estate, our buildings, uh, we want them to deal with climate change issues. And so um, it's just really infiltra- infiltrated everything we do, um, which I, for me, it's a great thing. It's, it's, good, it's good for the planet, it's good for people, it's good for local communities. And so... Um, that, that's one unique part of it, but, but then you're looking at air, air issues, you know, air pollution, water pollution, groundwater, soil, um, climate change. It's so all encompassing. Um, and then more and more over the last few years, we've really started focusing on energy because energy and environment are so interconnected and you can't talk about energy without talking about environment. And if you're really talking about the environment, energy uh, is a critical issue. So they've co- sort of become intertwined. Yeah, definitely. And um, as you kind of alluded to it, uh, there's a lot of cities that have adopted certain policies to be able to help drive uh, initiatives to uh, help improve those uh, states within each of those communities or cities at large. Um, more specifically on the energy side, of what, which I deal with from day to day, um, you know, we see a lot of that through energy codes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that's adopted at the state level uh, and then, you know, what's really unique here in Texas is it's called a home rule state where the state adopts a certain level of energy code, but yet these cities and jurisdictions have the, the say of whether or not they adopt that or if they uh, do any amendments and things of that nature. So uh, a lot of it has to do with uh, local government and who those officials are and, you know, being able to educate those officials on, you know, kind of what some of those drivers are, what matters, um, you know, City of Dallas uh, specifically has been doing a lot of uh, new initiatives and things of that nature with respect to the uh, Climate Action Plan, uh, along with other initiatives um, like the uh, City's Resilience uh, Plan as well. Um, that's another huge topic as, as it relates to climate change. And so uh, all those kind of encompass, um, you know, the, the broader perspective of, I guess, environmental and social responsibility, uh, which is uh, one of the huge drivers uh, within the industries. Uh, you also see a lot of this with corporations that are um, actually publishing and being transparent about that data as well, right? Um, when we talk about corporate uh, responsibility and social responsibility um, reports, uh, whether that's uh, internal in terms of how operations are done uh, and external engagement. So I think that's pretty important. Um, so with with your vast experience over 30 years, you know, you've worked on a lot of different uh, projects with a lot of different clients. Um what would you say um, in terms of the types of projects that you like working on the most uh, or maybe what has been your most challenging pro- project? Oh, gosh. Um, 
that, that's hard to say over that many years. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes it's just, it's, it's trying to figure out between a client in a city or a state or the EPA is try, trying to figure out a, a way of solving a problem where everybody can walk away with feeling they've at least got some of what they want. <laughs> and, and usually when you, when you settle something, nobody's totally happy, yeah. but that usually means you have a good settlement. But, you know, uh, one of the things I, we, we mentioned before we got on the, the podcast was, um, one of the, one of the, one of the fun things I like to work on are, or new areas where you have to draft a contract or come up with some legal interpretation for a new area. For example, um, in Brooklyn, Queens, there's what's called a demand response program that's very lucrative. And demand response, as you know, means the utility can call upon you and pay you basically to quit using electricity to reduce your load on the grid because that's actually the same thing as pumping more energy from a peak or power plant, which is very expensive to operate and very polluting. And so if, if you, if, you know, a hundred or a thousand buildings reduce their energy use by say 10 or 20 or 30%, that meets the same uh, result as pumping, you know, a thousand buildings worth of electricity into the system from a gas peaker plant. And uh, I got to work with a client that uh, was a private equity firm that was investing with a developer in New York City in the Brooklyn Queens Demand Response Zone, and they they basically paid the building owner to let them put batteries in. And so when when those demand response calls came, they would use that electricity for the building, so the building's energy use from the grid went down, and they got paid for that. And so we, we, we got to develop one of the first contracts for that type of activity, and that was a lot of fun, working with the client, trying to understand the issues, the legal issues, the practical and the technical issues. And uh, th- those are what are really fun is when you get to do something that's just cutting edge. Yeah, no, for sure. I, I, I uh, sad to say I haven't worked on any projects like that yet, but I know in the future it's, it's coming. <laughs> oh, it's coming. It's coming fast. Well, just to, to take a little bit uh, deeper dive into that, I mean, who from the design team or maybe it was owner driven uh, helped get, I guess, drive that process and, you know, how early did you have to start to start, uh, you know, planning around that when they were, I'm assuming this is a, was this an existing building or? An, an yeah, building? The, these were all existing buildings. Okay. And so the, the developer just went out and started talking to building owners and trying to sell the concept. Um, so, so the building owner gets, you know, some payment so they share in that program. And then at certain times, uh, assuming the battery's fully charged, they get some backup protection for, you know, some number of hours. And so it's a, it's sort of a win-win for the building owner uh, and the company that's providing that service. And um, the building owner can claim the environmental benefits of that of that project. So it's, it's really a win-win for, for the building owner, the developer, the company that's putting it in, the grid, the public, the environment. So it's uh, it really rewards a lot of different uh, aspects and stakeholders in the community. Nice, nice. Yeah, we were actually evaluating a project because um, while there are programs similar to that here um, in Texas and obviously even in the North Texas area with Encore, um, you know, I actually did an interview a couple months back uh, with one of the providers of that program and some of the other uh, incentive or rebate programs that are local. And, you know, that's probably one of the poorest performing in, in initiatives within that portfolio of Encore. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, you know, that's, 
you know, in the future going to be one of the things that are going to start to turn and shift and we see more pro- programs and more buildings uh, coming online uh, through that. Um, more specifically on the new construction side, because I think that's where uh, it's a lot easier to implement, uh, get it into the construction budget and things of that nature and start to, to plan for it and really even kind of marry that with um, performance modeling and energy efficiency measures to drive down that first cost uh, and obviously operational savings. Uh, so it's it's a win-win, like you mentioned before. And, um, you know, in cities like New York and even in California, I mean, at this point for them, it's really almost a must because if they don't, you know, that's when they start experiencing these blackouts and brownouts uh, and things of that nature that really interrupt service uh, during, you know, you know, peak hours, operating hours, business hours. And so uh, there's a, uh, a cost of not doing, um, and I guess, risk of not doing that in some of those areas. Sure, absolutely. You have to plan ahead. I mean, um, making changes to a grid over time is a, is a long-term expensive process. And so I, I think as we we see solar and batteries getting cheaper and cheaper, um, both new buildings and existing buildings, um, and folks like you will start designing in um, solar panels on buildings, particularly large warehouses, um, one of the things I've been working on with the group is the fact that if um, if the solar system is put in in a certain way with the roof, they sort of become a solar roofing system. And so with solar installations, you get a 30% investment tax credit on the capital you spend. And so if you can put some of the roof in with that solar installation, well, now you're getting a 30% tax credit back from the federal government for part of that roof. And so um, you can do that with new buildings. You can do that with replacement of roofs on existing buildings. And so um, if done right, uh, there's an opportunity to uh, save money on the roof. And so I think more and more as architects learn about that, they may go to their clients and go, well, what if we design this into our building uh, now? Uh, you get these investment tax credits. You get to generate some of your own power from your facility. Now there's the next level of that, which is if you put in batteries or energy storage in a building and, and those built, those batteries are charged with 75% of their capacity with solar, then those batteries also get a 30% investment tax credit. Mm-hmm. So, so, so if we can combine legal tax architect <laughs> and energy efficiency, the building owner, the building owner wins, the environment wins, the community wins, the grid wins. And so um, you know, when, when I was first coming through on environmental law, it was always, oh, you know, environmental is just a cost. I mean, we can't afford that cost. It's killing jobs. But now as these technologies have become more prolific and cheaper, you know, you can be sustainable and save or make money. And so we're just, we're just in a different world now. You can, you can be sustainable and, and help your company economically or help your client economically. And so I, I think it's just an exciting time as all these technologies are coming forth and profe- professionals like you and me get to participate with our clients and, and do good for the environment and hopefully save our clients some money. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and you kind of alluded to it, you know, making sure the right people are, are at the table, you know, early is important. So, uh, you, I mean, you just gave me something I can implement right away because, you know, we're working on a project right now where I'm almost certain that, you know, they only anticipated into that financial model the tax uh, uh, credit for just solar, just the solar equipment and not the roof because mm-hmm. they are replacing the roof on this mm-hmm. project as well. Yeah. So 
that's a that's another important thing is you know kind of knowing those little nuances and, and implementing right. them and um, those are some some real dollars that can be saved. They, they really are, and and you know some some of these roofs are three hundred thousand, half a million, million five for the roof itself. So, <laughs> so it's not it's not uh, it's a it's a considerable amount of potential savings. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I think oftentimes, and I've mentioned this before, you know, to an extent, for certain complex problems, people have to somewhat simplify and kind of silo things. But I think that to an extreme be a detriment to the project because you really don't get a chance to see uh, the whole picture, right? And understanding the cost benefits, you know, outside of operational cost savings, right? For instance, uh, and we've been able to do this on a lot of developer-driven projects where um, we're starting to associate the uh, asset value and added um, value of the property based on energy savings, um, increasing their net operating income. So um, as you reduce your OPEX, that, you know, inversely um, increases your uh, net operating income, therefore increasing your uh, property uh, value. And so rolling that into the fold as well uh, as it relates to some of the benefits that are associated with energy conservation measures. Uh, we see this, you know, all the time with, you know, HVAC systems or lighting and things of that nature, uh, or even if you're looking at the whole, whole building and we're trying to piece together systems to really optimize, to hit a certain target, you know, even if that's outside of, you know, some type of green certification, right? So, but, um, so we kind of mentioned the uh, New York benchmarking law. Um, you know, there's a lot of different liabilities and perceptions that certain owners have, uh, and even people that are in the market looking to either buy new buildings or buy existing buildings as to, to add to their portfolio. Um, what kind of liability and risk uh, might that pose to, uh, I guess, certain individuals that are looking to purchase facilities, uh, I guess, from an energy and water standpoint, um, you know, because with that particular, that, that law and the ordinance, um, it essentially gives each building a grade um, based on your energy use and water use. Um, so with that, I mean, could you even start to see, you know, maybe from a new construction standpoint or even a renovation standpoint, um, you know, companies like uh, architecture firms or engineering firms start to kind of create a hybrid design structure or fee structure to where uh, it's very similar to performance contracting, uh, where it's, a uh, you know, paid performance that, you know, your fee is contingent upon performance of the building or, you know, maybe there's some shared liability or shared uh, savings among some of the design strategies that are implemented. You see a model like that starting to emerge at all, you know, outside of just your typical EPCs. Um, certainly, that's that's possible. Um, it, anytime you're upgrading a building or designing a building, um, energy and energy efficiency, uh, water efficiency, um, are issues people should be considering and. Uh, certainly with all the financing opportunities for energy efficiency these days, particularly when you're renovating a property. Um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with property assess, clean energy financing or PACE. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use that to finance a lot of the, when you're e- easier to be done with a existing building, maybe a new building, but um, you know, there was a building in downtown Dallas. I think there were $40 million of upgrades uh, that were done through PACE. and The, and, the Butler Building. Yeah, the yeah. Butler Building. <laughs> and, 
And so you can, you can actually get 100% financing for the energy efficiency, water conservation, gas, natural gas conservation aspects. Mm-hmm. You can also add uh, generation like solar. And, and so that's, that's 100% financing for that aspect. And then you can pay that off for a very long time because you take all of the things that you're adding and you do sort of a, a ratio and, you know, the, the, the shorter period life uh, items like lighting are offset by say the, um, the, the life of say a roof or HVAC, which may be 10, 20, 30 years. And so you may see your amortization goes out 18 years. And so, so you're getting hundred percent financing, but you're getting it stretched out over a longer period of time than's typical. And so those, those can be, if, if done right, um, be very uh, cost effective from an investment perspective and you get all the returns from a, a cheaper, cleaner building. Um, so, so those are things I think, um, you know, the right architect or designer who's looking at the building, uh, if they, if they plan those in, they, they could say to their client, look, um, we'll reduce our fee or, or for a return on, the uh, savings that the building is going to produce for you over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And so I, I think that those are creative solutions which could benefit the, the building owner or developer as well as the, uh, the architect or engineers that are doing that, that planning and installation. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and being able to, you know, have some skin in the game, if you will, right. <laughs> around your right. design. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I get it oftentimes, a lot of projects, you know, once they're done, they just kind of walk away and, you know, unless it's a, a repeat client and things of that nature, you never really hear or they never have any kind of communication after the, they get their CO uh, and the building's built, people start moving in. Um, you know, you may have some instances where you maybe have commissioning, um, you know, a year later or whatnot, or they do measure, measurement and verification or some type of, you know, warranty period or walkthrough. But outside of that, uh, you really don't see a lot of, you know, other means and measures unless something goes wrong right Mm -hmm. and that's when the client Mm -hmm. picks up the phone and and makes that phone call but um very rare at least that i've seen there have been projects where the owner comes back and and says well you know i expected um you know to spend this much on energy and opex but you know i'm spending you know this up here Mm -hmm. uh kind of thing uh, you know two times more three three times as more um and so Obviously, those are, you know, large order of magnitudes, and that's probably the reason why you don't hear a lot of those calls come back. And there's obviously other factors that go into that as well um, in terms of occupancy and just normal operations and so on and so forth. Um, but I think it's it's a good topic to, to, to think about. And, you know, as designers start to, you know, start to build these dynamic models and be innovative around their fee structures and how they, um, you know, make that ask and providing better services to the client, it's going to be key to really kind of focus on these. these kinds of well, it's interesting. I'm, <clears throat> I'm representing a client and negotiating a commercial lease for a building. And w- one of the issues is, well, in a triple net lease, you know, what expenses is the tenant going to have to pay for? Well, if, if you get a highly efficient building that's gone through some certifications or the tenant has some, some uh, comfort that the, the, the cost of ownership, the cost of renting uh, those expenses are going to be lower because it's it's a better built building and it's cheaper to operate. And so, so that so a lot of the tenants on these triple net leases end up paying for a lot of the operating costs, if not most of the operating costs of the building. And so, you know, 
you know, people are always looking for the better building, the better rent, the better situation. And so some of these buildings may actually become more valuable. Uh, maybe they get higher rent because their operating costs are much lower. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so kind of taking a pivot um, and focusing, I guess, more on the architecture side of things. Um, you know, we, we talked about uh, one of the code of ethics that had been recently introduced into the AIA um, um, in terms of rulings on the, the code and requiring architects to be able to consider environmental impacts uh, and some of the standards associated with how, how they're designing buildings uh, and being able to disclose that to their, their clients. You know, how should architects really approach this moving forward? And, you know, you know is there any, you know, major liability issues with that and, and not disclosing? Um, kind of almost taking a step back to what we mentioned before uh, about designing a certain building with the expectation uh, that it is going to perform a certain way, you know, regardless if it has a green certification or not, but yet falling short in actual operations. Um, well, let's talk just first, let's talk about the the code and what's in it. And then let's talk a little bit about contracting with your client. And then let's talk about well, what happens down the road if you don't, don't do some of that disclosure. So, so as we look at the, uh, the code and, uh, it's referred to as sustainability, but they, apparently they didn't want to use the word sustainability because it's too broad and you know somewhat somewhat problematic. So they use more specific terms, um, and so one of the things that you have to also pay attention to is in in this code there are shell requirements and there are should requirements. Sure. So so shell should be considered mandatory, obviously, and then should is sort of aspirational. But let's we'll come back to whether aspirational <laughs> counts or not. So under the code, it says that uh, the architect shall make uh, reasonable efforts to inform their clients of the potential environmental impacts or consequences uh, of the work performed. So, so that's kind of a shell. So that's, that's pretty broad um, provisions. Uh, there are some should provisions, one of which relates to energy conservation, water use, uh, building materials, and you know toxins and pollutants in those building materials. Uh, sh- one of the shoulds are ecosystem impacts, uh, climate change, and adaptation. Um, and then the final one says members shall consider with their clients the environmental effects of their project decisions, which is, again, pretty broad. And so um, I, th- I think, you know, as we, as we go forward and we know that uh, expectations from the investment community, the tenant community, the local community, the national community – um, and as building codes become stronger and stronger, um, it, it's, it may almost be sort of a defensive move for the architects to be as clear as they can with their clients about environmental energy, water conservation, when they're designing a building for them. But I'd also advise them to really, you know, look at their contracts. And, and normally they're standard AIA contracts. Right. And, and, may, and I haven't looked at those recently to see if they've, made any changes in their contracts to reflect um, these changing um, ethical requirements. But I think, I think that's something to look forward, look at uh, as architects consider their contracts with their clients, but then really think about, you know, uh, how much effort would it really take to let them know about energy conservation, water conservation, these other things. Um, and, and is it really a benefit to your clients, you know, to say, look, if you choose these materials over those materials, you know, you're not bringing mahogany from a jungle in, you know, South America or something. (laughs) 
versus, you know, some other wood or some other product. Um, and, you know, do you want to be a lead building? Do you want to be lead silver, gold, or platinum? Um, and, and, you know, counseling with them, you know, well, what, what are the benefits of that? What are the cost savings? You know, would your building be more valuable? And then, you know, what, what are the standards and sales in, in the community in that particular region? Um, do people care? I mean, a city like Dallas, big city, um, everybody looking for the best and brightest, probably a big deal in some smaller cities. Maybe it's not as big of a deal, but, um, uh, I think it's a way to protect yourself as an architect, but also give a service. So it's, it could be a win-win again. I think I'm always looking for those win-wins. I think this may be, uh, one of those that, um, architects can achieve what they want, what they, what they believe in, you know, personally as well. And their companies, you know, are probably sustainable, sustainably driven. Um, so I think, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity for both parties. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, um, that's pretty insightful. I, I know that, you know, there's, with this emerging change, there's been a lot of architects just, you know, under, wanting to understand more about what it means and how they could obviously, you know, implement that. And, you know, even before this came along, there were a lot of architects that are, you know, doing this already. Right. Um, so it, it may not, you know, mean much of a change, but, uh, being able to educate and advocate that throughout the profession is, is pretty key to really driving, you know, performance. And especially as we start to make this transition, um, not necessarily away from energy and water conservation, but focusing more on um, how some of these impacts, and more so with the material side of things, uh, impact human health um, and health and well-being. Uh, it's a huge market that's starting to grow. And, you know, we've already seen it with a lot of the commercial office buildings implementing uh, a lot of these strategies, <clears throat> excuse me, around biophilia, uh, things of that nature, um, specialty lighting, circadian lighting. Uh, so it's it's pretty important, and you know this only just shor- shores that up. To be honest. Well, well, and you know what what people want who lease buildings or have their employees in buildings. The the, the people who live, are in a building, what do they want? They want comfort, safety, uh, clean. Uh, having been involved in some sick building cases, I mean, <laughs> it is not good for the employer. Or or the owner of the building. So, yeah. so the more you can make it, you know, more natural light. I mean, um, LED light uh, done right is is much much better quality light than fluorescent light. Fluorescent light's not really good for reading or restfulness or productivity. Mm-hmm. So you know, a lot of these things the architects can build in productivity for the people who uh, lease those buildings and who work there. And so it 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 can really bring a lot of value to those buildings. I mean, um, you know, when I started as a lawyer, you know, you were, you're in these offices and then they were all, you know, you know, you know, solid, solid doors. And so the secretaries out there were sort of in the darkness with no natural light, you know, it's kind of cruel. And, and now, you know, more and more the, the offices have, have uh, glass, uh, tempered glass, mm-hmm. And so natural light flows into the into the open space, and so people who are on in the interior offices or desks get natural light. Well, that that's a huge difference in how people uh, enjoy their jobs, what their productivity is. I mean, you know, just that alone is is incredible. It also sh- cuts down on the amount of electricity you have to use to drive lighting. Exactly. So, um, you know, it's it's a it's a big difference. Um, and certainly, you know, if people start becoming concerned about, you know, toxins in the carpet or the walls or the ceilings, man, it's just a disaster. I mean, it's an absolute <laughs> disaster for, for everybody. So, um, 
you know, as I said, I've been involved in those cases and it's, it's just not good for the employer. It's not good for the landowner, for the building mm-hmm. owner. Well, yeah, it's not something I actually never thought about. I mean, uh, I would imagine it's pretty hard to do, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody would bring a case to someone like that where, you know, obviously sick building sy- syndrome and it's, I guess, um, if it were to happen today, it would be very different than, you know, prior years where, you know, those standards weren't there and things of nature. Um, but kind of understanding if someone were to bring as, as an employee uh, a lawsuit or case against the employer for, certain uh negligence on certain materials that then impacted their health and so on and so forth it it's it's plausible but i think being able to get that point source would be very hard to do right because there's so many other factors things of that nature in terms of you know where that person has been and the uh, frequency or longevity within that space and so on and so forth but well, let me, let me give you a little, a little color to those disputes. So, <laughs> so sometimes it's just the employees don't show up for work. And so, you know, the employer's like, well, if I fire them, are they going to claim wrong for termination? Mm. So it's not necessarily just a lawsuit by the employee, employee against um, the, their employer or the building owner. And then, then the, the employer turns to the, to the landlord and says, well, I'm not going to pay you because my employees won't show up because of black mold or formaldehyde in something or some other concern. And some of those concerns may be valid. Some are, you know, not right. just, just to be honest. And I think you're sort of pointing that out. Um, but man, that's just, that's just, you know, it's just a money loser. I mean, it, it doesn't help anybody. Um, and so we all know that the more comfortable, the more natural light, the cleaner, the less toxic work environment, is better for everybody. And so if you, if you look at the productivity alone, avoiding those complaints, um, and, and you know, people didn't used to think about these things. They didn't used to think about, well, what, what, what chemical, what off gases are going to come from my carpet or my walls or my furniture, you know, but we know all about that right now. So, you know, designers and architects can really help their clients out who may not have that expertise and so you all can bring that expertise and say, let us help you, you know, might pay a little bit more today, but it'll save you money in the long run. If, if you, you can, you know, if you're, if you're, if your uh, uh, employees ask now, you know, I have a 30 year old, a 25 year old, and you know, they're, they're much more willing to say, you know, what's in the carpet, what's in the walls, you know, what is my workplace like than, than maybe I was when I was 25 <laughs> or 30 years old. And that, that's just, you know, top of mind for them and so as we we hire these people you know we've got to provide a workplace that that they'll find acceptable exactly exactly um you actually kind of made a good transition into kind of where i want to go next so kind of speaking to that uh natural daylight and views and things that nature and even in the situation where uh you may be counting on a lot of these strategies to uh, you know impact or lower your your opex or operating costs uh, but then also to provide value to tenants, uh, more so in more urban areas. If you're thinking about maybe a high-rise or mid-rise building that's being constructed, you know, you do all the research and you do all the the data mining and modeling to be able to understand how the building is going to be impacted by the surrounding context and so on and so forth. And you design around that to really tater, tailor and, and uh, really optimize that building. Um, what, what kind of um, liability would a uh, 
up and coming or a new building that is intended to be built right next to that, that would impede on maybe some of that production or some of the, you know, natural daylight that it was getting before and maybe not so much now. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in scenarios, which I know that's the reason why they don't do solar a lot in urban areas uh, anyway, but say maybe it's a more of a greenfield site. And then obviously over time, you know, things start to grow out and build up around that building. Uh, and maybe if you do have PV on the roof, now your production is being lowered due to shading or self-shading and things of that nature. What kind of what kind of liability or is there a case there for those building owners? Well, I think at least in Texas, uh, you know, your next door neighbor, assuming they have the zoning approved to build a high rise, can do that. And they don't have any liability for cutting off your son. Um, <laughs> now, it, when, when we're, interestingly, when we do uh, solar leases for utility scale, we have provisions that the landowners, either on the land you're leasing or adjacent property, can't build anything that's going to shade that solar farm because, uh, you know, that's the bread and butter of a solar farm is, is obviously the sunshine, right? A little bit harder to do, uh, if, if you're just putting solar on a building and you have, uh, empty land around you that could, could potentially see a high rise development approved by the city. Um, now if you're in Houston, there is no zoning, so <laughs> it's, it's a little harder, you know, here in Dallas, we actually have, we have civilization in Dallas. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I, lo- I love my friends uh, in Houston, love Houston, but, um, so, so there really isn't much in, at least in Texas, you can do for a landowner who, who has approval or, or builds a building, um, because, because they have the right, the air rights above their building, um, but in but in planning, you know, obviously you need to you need to think about if you're putting solar on a rooftop, you know, what is the development around you, you know, could you be shaded, um, you know, and if you if there's a real realistic chance you're going to be shaded in the next five or ten years, you may not want to go that far. But that's that's just a judgment call you have to make. All right, all right, that makes sense. Um, so with some of these, um, I guess more interesting projects, um, that you've worked on, um, I guess. Is there something that you'd like to share that you, I guess that you can share on um, any of those particular projects that uh, maybe threw you for a, threw you for a loop or anything uh, outside of maybe what you normally see or? Um, um, well, you know, we talked about the battery project. I, I represent a, a LED uh, uh, company that installs LED lighting. And so they were, they were trying to, develop an agreement for all their customers. And so some of the things we found is, you know, and as a lawyer, you know, the, 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 the hardest thing is to say what you want to say in as brief and few, few words as possible. So I, I work with a client who, who, uh, who would, who would say, I, I like those three paragraphs, but you need to say it in two sentences. So <laughs> that, that I said, well, that's going to cost you more. Um, uh, but, you know, really developing a, a contract that would work uh, in a commercial level where the, the, the customer's not going to want to see a 12-page contract. So we, we try to get it short. And, you know, one of the things was, uh, you know, I, I want to sort of have the right to come take those LEDs out if they don't pay. But I'm never going to mm-hmm. come take those LED lights out because it costs more than the contract to do that. <laughs> so. So that, that may be, uh, something I probably shouldn't have said, but that, that, those are sort of the things that, uh, make what I do fun and interesting is, is having those challenges, uh, where you have to be creative with a contract. You, 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 you have to really make those contracts fit the client as well as their customer. 
And, and as I said, you know, uh, you know, our, our solar releases for utility scale are, you know, 20, 30 pages. And a lot of that's just single spaced. Um, and I, and I used to always tell my clients, you know, don't just forward this lease to the landowner. You got to <laughs> warm them up to it. You got to explain why it's so long. Cause as the landowners, the longest lease they may have seen is like a page or two where they're, uh, renting their land for someone to, you know, bale hay or for a hunting lease. And so you got to explain that much of this is for the uh, 50 to $200 million financing that's going to take place. And it's most of the language in there is, is really to protect the, the lenders and the investors. And, 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 and so, uh, but, but lots of my clients just go ahead and send them anyway. And the, the landowners freak out and say, what the heck is this? And, you know, and uh, of course, for me, I just always blame it on the New York lawyers. I just say those those big banks in New York, those those lawyers there that charge a thousand, twelve hundred dollars an hour. This is what they have to see. So uh, I shift that blame to another lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know engineers have that issue too, trying to be concise and um, not having those long reports, especially when we're trying to uh, relay certain um, results to you know other parties or other consultants that you know they don't live and breathe that kind of stuff. So right. Um, but yeah, that, I mean, that, I think that's a, a broad, um, a broad uh, implementation that you could you know, have on on anything in, in terms of not necessarily having a one size fits all uh, solution. It's, it should be tailored to the project. And you know, there's a lot of times where I run across projects that may be trying to implement you know certain strategies, and they they want to try and use those rules of thumb a little too much. So. Um, but that's what makes the process so uh, unique and, uh, and, in my opinion, I think fun at times is you get a chance to go through that discovery period all over again. Um, you know, even if it's the same project type um, or a building typology, uh, you know, it's in a new site, a new context, you've got a new client. Uh, so just being able to understand that and, and kind of uh, tailor and, and be adaptable is, is key to, to being successful. Yeah, and, you know, makes makes what we do more enjoyable where you feel like you really – you know, been creative, you've really created something that's really going to benefit the client, uh, in their business going forward. That, that, that's, that's part of the reward of, uh, at least being a lawyer and I'm sure other professionals as well, as you feel you've, you've really helped the client out, you've, you've made their business go forward. And, um, you know, uh, if you do this long enough, you, you're looking for more than just getting paid. You want to actually have an impact. Definitely. Definitely. Well, kind of wrapping up, you know, what, what are some of the more important environmental and, uh, and even uh, energy laws that have been passed recently, and um, how do you see that these are affecting commercial and industrial building owners? Well, you know, a lot, a lot of what's going on is, is happening in places like California, New York, and Massachusetts, New Jersey. Um, you know, uh, I always tell people that, you know, us Texans should quit beating up on Californians because they're, they're paying the price of, uh, higher solar, higher batteries. And most of that's mandatory. And, and then when it gets cheap enough, uh, that in, a, in an electrical, in a free market electrical system, like we have in Texas, for the most part, um, we get the benefit of the cheaper costs without the mandatory program. And so, uh, California really imposed a lot of solar and renewable, uh, requirements, it drove the price down because, you know, along with Europe uh, and some other states, you know, they, they really built the market out through mandatory and, 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 and you know, incentives. Um, and so we in Texas got the benefit of that. You know, California is requiring a lot more battery storage to both be on the grid and having incentives to be 
behind the meter uh, within houses and buildings. And California passed a law that new new homes uh, have to have solar on them. And so, you know, that should continue to drive down the price of solar and batteries. And so we'll we'll get the benefit of that. And if you uh, the Electrical Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, which manages the grid in about 80 or 90 percent of the state, um, they're looking forward years down the road because they have to keep the grid, you know, managed and working. They're saying, you know, with with pricing going down, you know, solar is going to be very prevalent on homes and businesses. There will be batteries at homes and businesses. And we just got to, from their perspective, they've got to figure out, well, how do we manage that power coming on and off the grid with the solar farms, the wind farms, the natural gas fire power plants? How do you manage all that? And so they're developing computer programs, looking for new technologies, mostly digital technologies uh, to manage all that. So we're we're in a, we're in a rapidly changing uh, electric grid, um, you see more and more distributed energy and storage, mm-hmm. and um, there's just a lot of opportunities uh, in that space. Um, and, and so I, I think as you see what's going on in California, New York, and some other states, um, they're really they're really pushing down the prices through mandated programs that will uh, be driven more, I think, here by the market um, because of uh, lower cost energy savings. And, and I think more and more people will just you say, well, look, I'd like, I'd like to kind of own my own energy mm-hmm. and not rely on a centralized um, utility to provide that, that service and that power. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, um, that, that's a really interesting insight. And I know, you know, Encore is starting to develop, um, you know, a plan. I actually had a, a tour a couple of months back of one of the microgrids that they have here uh, nearby. And so um, it's a pretty interesting, you know, concept and being able to deploy that uh, when you when you need it, especially during those peak demand hours, uh, where the the grid could be really stressed, being able to offload some of that. So, yeah, I think you know technologies like solar and wind, whether it's you know at a local small scale or utility scale, can really bring a lot of benefit. And just being able to understand the distribution and how that actually gets to some of these urban centers, as we know, a lot of folks are you know living in cities and so and things of that nature. And, and, you know, just how that's distributed. You know, Texas is pretty large. So, um, you know, a lot of the wind that we have uh, comes from the, the northwest, um, mm-hmm. part of, or west part of Texas. Yeah, it's it's a, it's interesting times. Uh, it's fun. And being able to you kind of work with some of these solar contractors and things of that nature on new projects or even existing buildings uh, where we could, you know, maybe take advantage of some of those incentives or even uh, the PACE financing, like you mentioned before, uh, was a pretty pretty impressive program in my opinion um and you know it varies a little bit differently from state to state um you know some of them do new construction and existing buildings mm-hmm. uh, and i think yeah. if you can do it for new construction that is a win-win because a lot of times those energy efficiency measures you're going to be doing anyway so right. you might as well right. go ahead and be able to you know have some unique financing vehicles to be able to help benefit the project uh and you can use that money elsewhere yeah, I, I think in some ways, uh, PACE is uh, really important for new construction. So hopefully, you know, they'll be more and more prevalent in Texas. Um, and, you know, that program hasn't grown as fast as, as I would have thought. So so I think I think part of it is just education. People don't really understand it or know about it. Um, but it's part of the capital stack for, 
renovation or new build, it, it really can be in the right situation, uh, really reduce the price of the building construction. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, definitely, uh, thank you for joining us again today. This is a really, really amazing topic. Um, and I definitely want to talk more offline uh, as well, but, uh, hopefully our listeners were able to get a benefit out of this and, you know, take away a couple of nuggets that they can then implement in some of their projects or even, you know, have some of these conversations more openly with some of their clients uh, and some of their uh, partners and consultants on projects. So thank you. Well, well, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to 3P Theory with Mike Brown. If you like our show and want to know more, check out 3Ptheory.com or please leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. Join us next time for more insightful knowledge on high-performance building design.